I realised then it was a, a human pelt. It was the skin minus the head. A full skin just hanging from the, from the top of the door frame. Looked past it and uh, saw a torso on the ground without a head and without any genitalia. And uh, I think my first reaction then was to turn around to Scotty and say, don't look, Scotty. <laughs> of course, that's the worst thing you could say. guys, I'm Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And welcome to Crime Salad. Crime Salad is a true crime podcast delivering a healthy portion of crimes bi-weekly on Wednesdays. If you or someone you know lives with domestic violence, you're not alone. Get help without saying a word by visiting the National Domestic Violence website at www.thehotline.org or by calling 1-800-799-SAFE. Help is available 24-7, 365 days a year. Before we jump into the episode, we would like to warn you, if you're on your lunch, you may want to listen to this at another time. Parts of our podcast may be unsuitable for some listeners. Listener's discretion is advised. This week's crime is so gruesome, many news stations were not able to cover the story. And for this reason, there seems to be a lot of discrepancies with the facts. We've cross-referenced the facts in this episode across as many articles as we could. The morning of February 29th, 2000, in the small town of Aberdeen, Australia, police get a call from a concerned co-worker. The police are asked to perform a wellness check on a man named John Price, who did not show up for work. Police pull into John Price's driveway, where his vehicle is still parked. After a few unanswered knocks at the door, police notice blood near the doorway and decide to enter the house. What they walk into is something that will scar them for the rest of their lives. This week's episode, we will cover a gruesome crime committed by Catherine Knight, who had a disturbing obsession with death and a temper like no one has ever seen before. So a little bit about Catherine Knight. Catherine is not someone you'd want to get involved with. But strangely enough, she seems to have some sort of appeal certain men can't resist. To understand this case, we need to look at Catherine and her past. Catherine was born October of 1955 in Aberdeen, Australia. Aberdeen is a small town in New South Wales, Hunter Valley, the type of town where everybody knows each other. And around this time, Aberdeen was very well known for its slaughterhouses. Catherine grew up in a very abusive and dysfunctional family environment. And according to Catherine, she was regularly sexually assaulted by her brothers and often beaten by her parents. Catherine's father was an alcoholic and would violently rape her mother Barbara openly multiple times a day. Her parents had a very abusive relationship and her mother was often beaten badly after an argument. Violence was a very consistent part of Catherine's childhood, and eventually she grew desensitized to it. At the age of 15, Catherine dropped out of school 
and following in her father's footsteps, took on a job at the local slaughterhouse as a general laborer. Catherine would soon be promoted and received her first set of knives. Catherine was immensely proud of her accomplishment, as this has been one of her long-time dreams. She was referred to as very caring and sweet by her friends and family. But Catherine had a very well-known reputation. From those who knew her well, if she was in a bad mood, it was in your best interest to keep your distance. While in high school, she was a bully who often picked on smaller children, and even sometimes making very violent threats. When not in one of Catherine's dark moods, she was actually quite the opposite. In 1974, Catherine would meet her first love, David Kellett, at the young age of 18. The two met while working together at the slaughterhouse, as they were falling for each other, and quickly turning into the type of couple who did everything together. The two were in love, and they were each other's first. And after just six short months of dating, Catherine had asked David to marry her, which he agreed. On their wedding day, the two arrived at the courthouse on a motorcycle, and David was noticeably intoxicated. As soon as they get there, Catherine's mother, Barbara, gave David some alerting advice. So basically, Barbara makes a point to come speak with David on his wedding day, telling him if he ever makes Catherine mad, she'll likely kill him. Just listen to this quote. Let me know what you think. You better watch out for this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up with her or she'll fucking kill you. So Ricky, if my mom came up to you and said that on our wedding day, what would you think? I don't know. I I think I'd just leave. Like, (laughs) it's pretty off-putting. Yeah, I would be a little scared. Definitely. I don't know. But at the same time, he might have been thinking like, ah, is Barbara a little crazy? Like, I don't know. He's also extremely intoxicated. So. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. I mean, maybe he just thought she was joking, like saying some weird shit. Well, later that night and after celebrating at a local bar, the happily married couple would head back to their hotel to enjoy the rest of their night. But to David's surprise... Catherine had very specific expectations for the night. After a romantic evening together, the two would make passionate love a few times. Exhausted, David went to sleep for the night. But to Catherine, the night was ending too soon. Full of rage, Catherine dives on top of David while he's still asleep, violently strangling him, almost to the point of killing him. While putting up a fight, David manages to wrestle Catherine off of him and is able to escape. So what was that? What would infuriate Catherine so much she'd want to kill her new husband on their wedding night? Well, later he'd actually find out the reason he was attacked was because they only had intercourse three times that night. And to David's surprise, Catherine expected to have intercourse at least five times because this was the number of times her mother had made love on her wedding night. And even though this should have been an immediate red flag for David, they would remain married for 10 long years. And in those 10 years, David would experience numerous violent acts with Catherine. 
And on a separate occasion, David was out late competing in a dart competition at a local bar. He was out much later than he anticipated after making the finals. Heavily pregnant, Catherine was furious David was still not home. And feeling betrayed, she planned to make her feelings felt when he walked through the door. And as he walked through the door, Catherine smashed him in the back of the head with a hot clothing iron, fracturing his skull. Everything went black. And two days later, David would wake up in the hospital and remain there for 10 days to fully recover from the act. But this still wasn't enough for Catherine. While David was in the hospital, Catherine gathered up all of his clothes and belongings and put them in a bathtub and set them on fire. While still at the hospital, police urged David to press charges against Catherine, but Catherine convinced him not to for the sake of their soon-to-be-born child, and David would agree. With the continuous violent abuse from Catherine, David was beginning to get fed up and decided to move to Queensland with another woman, leaving his new baby and Catherine behind. Catherine felt betrayed by this and abandoned, putting her mind in a very dark place. This was a tipping point for Catherine, and soon after, she was seen in public violently thrashing a stroller around with a newborn baby inside. Eyewitnesses call the police, and she's admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital. Doctors diagnosed her with postnatal depression, and she stayed there for several weeks before being let go. Even though she was admitted... This didn't seem to stop Catherine's violent behavior. As her anger and resentment towards David continues to rise, Catherine then abandons her two-month-old baby by placing her on an active train track. With her baby still on the tracks, Catherine goes into town swinging a stolen axe, threatening to kill anyone near her. Back at the tracks, a local man named Old Ted found and rescued the baby off the tracks just moments before a train would come through. Police arrest Catherine and take her back to the same psychiatric hospital. However, this time, Catherine would sign herself out the very next day. Catherine's motive was still not complete. And keep in mind, this all happened in the 70s, and even after she was extremely violent and endangered the life of her daughter, Catherine would still get her daughter back, and hardly with a slap on the wrist. There was another instance, and we'll keep it brief. Catherine asked a local neighbor to give her a ride to the doctors because her baby was sick. The neighbor agrees. And while in the car, Catherine pulls out a knife and demands them to take her to David's mother's house to kill David's mother. On their way, the family managed to convince Catherine to pull over at a nearby convenience store because their child was having an asthma attack. The family alerted the store clerk to contact police. Once police arrived, Catherine was in a full-out rage, swinging a steel rod, threatening to hit someone. Police arrest Catherine, and she is taken to the same psychiatric hospital for a third time without any criminal charges. This is something that I just can't understand. She clearly is not a fit mother. She's extremely violent to anyone that gets in her way but somehow doesn't get anything more than a stay at the psychiatric hospital. I don't know. It, it feels like back then they didn't really understand like mental health. 
you know, it, it seems like she's doing these things and, you know, she's just getting like a slap on the wrist and they're, they're kind of blaming mental health. They're like, oh, she's not in the right state of mind. That's why she did these things. Let's give her some treatment and, you know, we'll release her. But it's like these things keep happening. She knew exactly what she was doing. She knew if she injured David's mother that she would have his full attention. Although Catherine never made it to David's mother's house, Catherine's overall plan was beginning to play out. And when David heard the news, him and his mother set out to save Catherine from the psychiatric hospital. When they arrived to pick up Catherine, Catherine's mother Barbara just signed her out. David and his mother, still in the car, are seen by Catherine's mom. Barbara goes absolutely crazy on David as he still sits in the driver's seat. Catherine comes running up behind her mother, Barbara, and punches her in the back of the head, knocking her down. David's mother is still in the back seat of the car and completely shocked about what she witnessed. But in Catherine's eyes, she won. She now has David's full attention, which is all she really wanted in the first place. And at this point, Catherine is just being rewarded for all of her bad behavior, and it just seems to get worse from here. After all of this, somehow David and Catherine decide to make a fresh start. David gets a new job driving trucks, a job keeping him on the road a lot, while Catherine gets another job at a slaughterhouse, doing what she loves. In 1979, Catherine and David decided to move to Queensland with their child. Shortly after, Catherine convinces David to have another baby, with David always being away for his job and Catherine always home alone with her two children, Catherine begins seeing another man, and this time she leaves David on her own terms. Catherine and her kids travel about nine hours to their hometown in Aberdeen. So, Ricky, how Catherine is so controlling and so violent with David, it's just crazy to think that she could just move on to the next guy. It's almost like she had nothing else to fight for. Yeah, like my initial thought was, you know, Catherine was really passionate about this relationship. You know, she's had she has a family with him. Um, and to me, it just seemed like she was really fighting to keep her family together and, you know, like the love she had for David. You know, but the, the more we hear about this, it, it kind of seems like she just wanted control, you know, like she wanted to be the one that decided she was going to leave the relationship. Mm-hmm. So after Catherine leaves David, she's now living alone back in Aberdeen with her two daughters. But Catherine wouldn't be alone for long. She quickly met a new guy named David Saunders, and in no time, he moved to Aberdeen, got a good job as a miner, and began living with Catherine and her daughters. Saunders even brought his new puppy named Dingo. Things seemed to be perfect, but this magic would only last a couple of months before he'd see the true dark side of Catherine. Catherine began putting Saunders through the same type of abuse she put her ex-husband David Kellett through. In any event very similar to her ex-husband's, Saunders returned home late one night, and when he walked through the door, Catherine stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors and smashed him over the head with a frying pan. Saunders was the type of guy who would often be out late at a local pub, and Catherine feared he would leave her for another woman. 
Trying to use fear to control Saunders, during an argument, Catherine ran outside to where Saunders' puppy Dingo was tied up. She kneeled in close, held a knife to the innocent puppy's throat, and told Saunders if he ever cheated on her, this is what she'd do to him. And without hesitation, Catherine sliced the sharp blade through the puppy's throat. I don't know, Ashley. It seems to me like it takes a really messed up person to, like, kill an innocent puppy just to make a point. I can't believe Catherine would do something like this. And just to prove a point, there's so many other things she could have done that could make him think twice. Like, I don't know, like scratching his car. But to slice the puppy's throat, that's just beyond demented. There's definitely something wrong with this girl. And just like David Kellett, after all of this, Saunders still doesn't leave. In 1988, Saunders and Catherine have a baby. But shortly after the birth, Saunders makes a very hard decision. Saunders tells his employer he needs to take a long service leave from the mine, telling them he needs to get out of town. Saunders made his way to the mountains, where he would hide out and had no intention to return. Catherine originally tried to look for Saunders, but no one would admit to knowing where he went. It seemed Catherine didn't have the same type of drive she did with David Kellett to find Saunders. Catherine then meets a man named John Chillingworth, a 43-year-old former slaughterhouse worker, and in 1990, only 11 months after they met, Catherine became pregnant with their son, Eric. After a three-year relationship together, Catherine leaves Chillingworth after having a long-time affair with a man named John Price. There isn't a lot of information about the relationship, or if it was a violent one. But one thing we do know is when Catherine left, she left all four children with Chillingworth when they split. Maybe this was Catherine's way of starting over with a clean slate. Although Chillingworth was upset at the time, he would later be referred to as a very lucky man. John Price is a very hard worker and works at the local mines. He enjoys being a regular at the local bar as a divorced man. He has three children, a two-year-old who remains with his ex-wife, and two older children who live with him. According to his friends and family, he seems to be a fairly easygoing guy. Before we go any further, let's take a step back. There seems to be a pattern with all of Catherine's past lovers, and it's not just the fact she seems to have a thing for guys either named David or John. They were all rugged, tough men, and had a lot of traits in common. They were all heavy drinkers who spent a lot of time at the bar. Being they were all heavy drinkers, could this have made them an easy target? Could the fact that they were always intoxicated make them more vulnerable and easier for Catherine to manipulate? Similar to past relationships, Catherine's relationship with John Price moved rather quickly. After dating for 18 months, Catherine urged John to marry her, but John did not want anything to do with this. We're going to take a quick break here to tell you about BetterHelp. 
BetterHelp is an online service that I personally use for my mental health. They provide a number of professional licensed counselors who specialize in all situations that may be interfering with your happiness. It's seriously my personal outlet to get my mind right. It's affordable. It's so convenient. I decided to give BetterHelp a shot when I was going through a very anxious part of my life. So I just signed up and I was matched with an amazing counselor who was so willing to talk with me right away. We actually set up a video chat later in the week to catch up. We are all so busy. Give yourself the care that you need today. Start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash crime salad. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash crime salad. He told her he was only in it for the sex. This only made matters worse, and to no surprise, the violence in Catherine and John's relationship continued to get worse. But from the outside, things appeared to be pretty normal. Although Catherine and John didn't live together, she treated his house like it was her own. At this point, things were starting to spiral out of control. Even verbal arguments were turning physical. On one occasion, Catherine turned violent and stabbed him in the chest. Because arguments were getting so dangerous, John demanded her to leave multiple times but Catherine stood her ground and refused to leave. Instead, while John was at work, she would rummage through his belongings and one day came across his written will stashed away in his sock drawer. After opening the will, it revealed he was leaving all of his belongings and savings to his ex-wife and kids. This infuriated Catherine, and when John returned home, she demanded $10,000 to leave him for good. John refused to give her anything at all. Catherine immediately seeked revenge. She couldn't stand not having complete control over John's life. And he wasn't giving in. But Catherine had a plan. If she could find a way to make John lose his job, she knew it would cripple him. This is when she decides to make a video recording of items John brought home from his work. Notably, an expired first aid kit John removed from the trash at the mine. Catherine then sent the video to the police and to John's boss. Catherine's mischievous plan caused John to be fired from his job after being employed for 17 long years. John was 43 years old, unemployed, and in an instant, he lost everything he built for himself, along with his pride. This time, Catherine had gone too far and John finally put his foot down and kicked her out of the house for good. A few months go by and somehow John forgives Catherine and they get back together. Only this time, he refuses to let her move in. His friends and his family could not believe it. Many of his friends who were there for him when he lost his job refused to support him in his decision to get back with Catherine and quit talking to him. What was so appealing about getting back together with Catherine? There's really no benefit in being in a relationship with Catherine at all, and there's nothing really holding them together. They're not married, they don't have any kids or even a house together, not to mention there's so much violence. But what John doesn't know is this would be the worst decision he would ever make. At this point, John is becoming more and more terrified of Catherine 
and what she could be capable of. Soon, John would get his job back, and on his first day back to work, he expresses his growing fear of Catherine to his co-workers. John tells them about a huge fight they had the day before and how in the middle of the night, he woke up to find Catherine standing near his bed with her hands held eerily behind her back, watching over him. Confused and sensing danger, John managed to see Catherine's reflection from the mirror in the room. There was nothing in her hands. John tells his co-workers he has had enough and he wants Catherine out of the house and out of his life for good. It's now February 29th, 2000. John goes to his boss as a cry for help and tells them Catherine is absolutely insane and he desperately fears for his life. His boss recommends he goes to the police to file a restraining order against Catherine to get her out of his house. John takes his advice, but is given bad news. Police tell him they're unable to move Catherine from his house, and they would need at least three weeks to take legal action against Catherine. John boldly tells the police he'll probably be dead by then. Frightened for John's life, his friends and co-workers urge him not to go home that night. But John insists he has to. If he doesn't go home, Catherine will go after his children. With a steady face, John tells his friends, if I don't show up for work tomorrow and my car is still in the driveway, she killed me. In the meantime, Catherine already planned out her attack. That morning, she went out and bought herself a sexy silk black nightie, as if it were a special occasion. Catherine then took an unexpected trip to her daughter's house to make a memorable visit with her grandchildren. Catherine brings along her video camera to document the visit. In the video, she's seen kissing and hugging her grandchildren, as if she was saying goodbye. She then looks right into the camera and says, I love my grandchildren, and I hope I'll see you all again. Almost as if she wasn't sure if this would be the last time she'd say it. That evening, with a well-thought-out plan, Catherine goes back to John's house, takes a nice relaxing shower, puts on the black nightie she bought earlier, watches some TV, and then, finally, it's time. Catherine wakes up John, and they begin having passionate sex. And as soon as they finish, she strikes. It's now March 1st. And as the workday begins, co-workers notice something's off. John's still not at work. And this is unlike John. John is always the first to arrive to work, and he still hasn't showed up. John's co-workers are beginning to get the feeling something bad has happened to John, as he previously warned them the day before. With the words, if I don't show up to work, she killed me, still fresh in their minds, they waste little time and reach out to a neighbor who confirms John's car is, in fact, still in the driveway. Without hesitation, co-workers quickly notify the police, urging them to check up on John. As police approach John's house, they find his car is still in the driveway. The two officers knock on the front door of John's house, but no one answers. It's suspiciously quiet, as if no one was home. One officer peeks into the mail slot, and sees what looks like blood on the wall. 
officers make their way into the backyard and enter the house through the back door. Now inside, the house is quiet and it seems empty. As the officers slowly walk through the house, they see something that resembles a curtain hanging in the kitchen doorway. As they near the kitchen, a police officer guides the curtain-like object to the side in order to look into the kitchen. The curtain felt thick and cold to the touch. The police officer feels something wet running down his arm. It was blood. His initial thought was he must have injured his arm when breaking through the door. But after taking a closer look and examining his arm, there was no cut. Directing his attention back to what he thought was a curtain, and this time taking an even better look, he quickly realizes this was no curtain. This was human skin hanging from a meat hook in the entryway. The officers' bodies filled with fear, and they were in complete disbelief about what they were seeing. Managing to pull themselves back together, they continued past the hanging skin and into the kitchen. There, laid on the floor, was a heavily mutilated torso of a man with its skin removed and the head and genitals nowhere to be found. Looking around the room, the floor and walls were heavily smeared with blood, and the human remains were scattered carelessly across the kitchen floor. The scene looked similar to a cutting station at a local butcher shop or something you'd see out of a horror film. Their focus moved to the dinner table, where a home-cooked meal was prepared. The meal was carefully prepared on three plates, consisting of a thick-cut steak and a side of carefully placed vegetables, one labeled for each of John's children. Near the table were photos of John's children with a knife angrily stabbed through them and hanging on the wall. And then, as if it were the grand finale, police direct their attention to a large pot on top of the stove. With hesitance and reluctant to what they might find, the officers approach the pot, which still appears to be warm, and remove its cover. Inside, they find John's boiled, severed head submerged in water accompanied by cabbage and other chopped vegetables. Still in shock and convinced they were now dealing with a monster, police knew they needed to keep searching the house and continued on with their guns drawn. While making their way through the house, they hear someone snoring. Following the sound, they enter a bedroom to find Catherine Knight asleep in her bed. Police try to wake Catherine, but she remains unresponsive. Police then notice a pile of empty sleeping pill packets near her bedside, as if she were trying to commit suicide. Police radio in for backup and request an ambulance before carrying her unconscious body outside and into the front yard. When ambulance arrive, they rush her to a nearby hospital. Investigators find the night of John's murder, John was stabbed in his sleep before stumbling out of bed and attempting to turn the bedroom light on before Catherine chased him viciously through the house, continuing to stab him. John managed to make his way outside and out the front door 
before Catherine caught and dragged him back into the house. She then continued to pull him down the hallway, where he eventually bled out and died. The autopsy later revealed John was stabbed 37 times in total, with stab wounds covering both the front and back of his body, and left on the floor for several hours. During this time, Catherine is believed to have left the house to withdraw $1,000 from John's bank account before returning home to finish what she started. It is at this time she skinned, decapitated, and butchered John before cooking his remains. With Catherine now as their number one suspect, please contact John's family to break the news. Their family was in complete shock and could not believe what they were hearing. One of John's daughters, who was 14 at the time, was absolutely traumatized by the news of her father's violent murder. At the hospital, Catherine would make a complete recovery, giving detectives a chance to question her for the first time about the evil murder of John Price. When questioned specifically about the events happening the day of John's murder, Catherine claims she has no memory of it at all. She admits to having violent fights with John in the distant past and even stabbing him once in an argument on accident, but never admitting to have any involvement in his recent murder. Detectives would describe their interactions with Catherine as pretty normal and sometimes even pleasant. It was hard to picture this person performing such an evil and gruesome act. Police and everyone involved went through extensive counseling and therapy to deal with the haunting memories of what they saw and encountered. Many even admitted to having nightmares for years, replaying what they saw at John's house over and over in their minds. To many, this awful case stays all too fresh in their memories to this day. Initially, Catherine entered a plea of not guilty for John Price's murder still making the claim that she had no memory of the incident whatsoever. When the trial began, the court offered the 60 jury prospects to have the option to be dismissed because of the gruesome nature of the crime and the photographic evidence which will be involved. Out of the 60 jury prospects, five dropped out immediately, and once the witness list was read out loud, several more would drop off. For those of you who might not know what a witness list is, in a criminal case, a witness list may be used to inform prospective jurors of who will likely testify, allowing prospective jurors to state if they know any of the witnesses and would therefore be partial in making a decision. However, none of this would matter because the very next day, Catherine would change her plea from not guilty to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. Shortly after Catherine's decision was made public, the judge ordered a psychiatric assessment to make sure that Catherine was fit to make such a plea. Catherine's legal team planned to defend her by claiming amnesia and dissociation. However, after a psychiatric assessment, they would conclude Catherine was sane, but suffered from borderline personality disorder. I find it strange that Catherine never gave a reason for making a guilty plea, she never took responsibility or admitted to the crime. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the judge took this into consideration when making the sentence. Throughout the trial, Catherine showed like a general lack of remorse for her actions. So this actually resulted in Catherine being the very first woman in Australia 
to ever be given life in prison without parole. Yeah, and Catherine and her legal team would actually try to appeal that sentence, but were turned down. So Catherine is now 64 years old, and she's 18 years into serving her life sentence in Silverwater Women's Correctional Center. The book Green is the New Black by James Phelps had a really cool excerpt where they interviewed a woman who is also an inmate at Silverwater. She spoke about what a typical day looks like for Catherine and how other inmates perceive her in the correctional center. Catherine seems to have adjusted very well to the life in prison and is often referred to as the prison nana. A typical day for night starts at 7 a.m. every morning when she wakes up to go to one of the most tedious jobs in the prison, making airline headphones. She's stuck in a factory every day from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. making headphones on a big, loud machine. Catherine is one of the best workers in the headphones factory and commands the top wage. She gets through more work than anyone else, and she enjoys her job taking pride in what she does. After Knight finishes her day at the headphone factory, she eats lunch before retiring to her cell. Her cell is the same size as every other cell in the wing. It's a one-out, single-person corner cell at the end of the wing. She has a bed, clothes, and the centerpiece of her room is a big old table that she uses for making art. Knight is also a prolific prison artist. She has become a skilled painter and raises money for the prison by selling her work. She's an incredible artist, but she never signs anything that she does, and she never will. She doesn't want anyone making money off her name because she killed someone. She hates the idea of some sick person buying her art because they think what she did was cool. The thought of someone hanging something on their wall just because she's a killer repulses her. Catherine is amazing with pencil, paint, and pottery. A lot of her pottery is on display in the foyer. On occasion, she allows them to sell a lot of it to raise money for charity in the jail without her signature, of course. According to the inmate, Knight has little left on the outside of prison. Her family and friends have all abandoned her. The inmate also stated she has zero contact with the outside. Everyone would be on the phone every day speaking to people outside, but she's never seen Catherine on the phone, and it's actually quite sad. And although Catherine loved to cook in her past, she's not allowed anywhere near the cafeteria kitchen or sharp knives. So this concludes the story of Catherine Knight. If you're interested in learning more about this case, you can find pictures of Catherine, her ex-lovers, and the crime scene on our website at crimesaladpodcast.com and also on our Instagram at Crime Salad Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, help support Crime Salad by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to follow us on Instagram and be sure to tell a friend about Crime Salad. If you or someone you know lives with domestic violence, you're not alone. Get help without saying a word by visiting the National Domestic Violence website at www.thehotline.org or by calling 1-800-799-SAFE. Help is available 24-7, 365 days a year. Do you have a case that would be awesome for our podcast? Feel free to reach out to us directly. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you all so much for listening. 
We'll see you again. Crime Salad is a true crime podcast delivering a healthy portion of crimes bi-weekly on Wednesdays. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain.